0: Hey guys, welcome to this week's edition of the Once Bitten Podcast. Today's guest is Richard James. He is the uh, the filmmaker of um, hardmoneyfilm.com where you can go and watch the film for free at that website or find it on YouTube, whatever you want. Uh, head to the website though because um, if you enjoy it, you can send across a few sats to show your appreciation uh, for the hard work. It's, uh, it's a great film. It's short, 30-35 minutes long. And um, covers, you know, hard money and uh, covers all the things. And it features all your favorite people. You know, it starts off with, uh, with, with Ben Prentice from uh, What the Fuck Happened in 1971 um, narrating. And then you, you hear from Safe and uh, Robert Breedlove, Preston, Jimmy Song, Michael Goldstein, Guy Swan, Tour, Plan B, Parker Lewis... They're all in there and um, he's, he's mashed all of this together from, from podcasts and, and interviews with these guys and overlaid it with some, you know, existing uh, documentary uh, film or cartoons. And, uh, you know, just sat down there, got creative during lockdown, put his skills to work and created a film about hard money and, um, you know, teaching people about the past of, uh, of money and where we're at right now and obviously what Bitcoin could mean. So, I hope you enjoy this one. Before we do get into the show, um, the shill for coinfloor.co.uk forward slash bitten. If, um, if you want to go start stacking some sats, that's the place to head to. Uh, I want to show my boys um, at 21ism and uh, Sir Badminton's music is, uh, is playing in the background. They uh, Keep a close eye on that website guys, it's going to become a thing in the space and you want to be following those guys. So uh, let's get into this one with Richard and um, as always, thank you so much for listening. Hey guys, welcome to this week's edition of the Once Bitten Podcast and joining me today is uh, filmmaker Richard James who made the film Hard Money. Richard, thanks for spending the time with us today.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Daniel. Thanks, Lauren. Glad to be here. Now, Lauren, fire away. It's over to you.
0: Um, why did you make the film?
1: I made the film because, I, yeah, I got really excited about Bitcoin, is a simple answer, and I really wanted to tell a story about it, and it's something that I've always been interested in, is, is telling stories. And I think whether that is um, a film or a book or a podcast or, you know, whether it's, a, it's fictional like a superhero film or non-fictional like and you're trying to put across information, I think that really at, at the bottom of it all, all you're trying to do is, is tell a story. And I think the, the reason that works is that you know, when we learn things, it's not just absorbing the, the content of the information. It's like our emotions and the way we, we react to things and that, that helps us learn. And so um, certainly for me, that's how it works. And so I sort of tried to piece this story together and I think for me, like I, I worked hard on it and, and fiddled around with it and then you sort of get this feeling sometimes when um, it's, it's like an emotion. You can't quite describe it in words and I guess... That's obvious because if you could, then you wouldn't need the the video or the music or the sound effects or anything, but it's like you get this feeling and the, the sort of little hairs on your arm or on your neck stand up and it's like this emo- this emotional reaction um, and when I, I watch back on what I'm doing and I get that feeling, I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of onto, onto something here. This is working and I sort of know that if I'm feeling this, then other people uh, will hopefully feel the same way. So that was... That was the reason why to sort of tell this this story about Bitcoin through um, working through film, which is something I love to do. And you've
0: started watching it, so and you've seen the, um, the the little clip, the little two minute clip about the uh, Cantillon effect, um, where you use um, seashells? Ca- cartoons. Oh, and you've learned about seashells, yeah. Mm. But um, that little Cantillon uh, thing is like a little cartoony thing, which yeah, is oh,
1: that one, yeah, that one. Okay, yeah, I remember.
0: And you probably don't realise it, but you're learning when you're watching that. I know. When I'm watching Wild Kratz, it's like um, this nature thing to,
1: to help you with the animals. It was really funny, but I didn't know that I was learning at the same time. Yeah, it's, it's a great way to learn. Big shout out to
0: Wild Kratz, who are also Aussies. <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh, I, don't, I don't know Wild Kratz. I'll have to check that out for my kids.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, you would oh, love those guys. Oh, it's
1: so funny.
0: Well, we've gone down a weird rabbit hole. So. <laughs> <laughs> but um, did you have any other questions for Richard? Um, no. Well, thanks very much. Do you thanks want to very much, Lauren.
1: Bye. Bye.
0: Yeah, you're right. It's like uh, we learn so much through... Like watching these these small – and that's what I liked about your movie. It's like, you know, 34, 35 minutes long. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, that's right.
0: Was that done intentionally or did you just run out of um, things to say <laughs> because I doubt it? <laughs> it,
1: was, it was a bit of both. You know, I think um, I, I got to the point where I couldn't – I practically couldn't make it any longer. I was starting to get like carpal tunnel syndrome in my um, – <laughs> wrist. I'm, I'm a bit of an amateur when it comes to like video editing. So the professionals have all these fancy shortcuts with the keyboard and stuff. But for me, it's like, old. like I'm just clicking a thousand times an hour, you know, shifting little clips and cutting here and there. So I literally couldn't move my, my arm by the end of it. Um, but I realized as well that it was actually a really good length because it's not such a big commitment. You just sit down and watch it in half an hour. Whereas, and I, I know for me, like even if it's something I'm really interested in, I see a documentary that's like an hour and 45 minutes and I just go, oh, I don't know how I'm going to find the time to sit and watch that um, or, or just concentrate on something for that long um, and then you have to break it up and lose the effect. So, yeah, I think in the end that was actually a real uh, positive, like that, that short and sweet length.
0: Yeah, I found exactly the same um, because, uh, you know, I found the film, and it's like, okay, brilliant, I've got to make time to, to watch this. And I was expecting it to be an hour and 30, an hour and 45 minutes long when it was like just 34 minutes. I'm like, oh, wow, this is awesome, I can bang this out now.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly, <laughs> that's got got the to- thing, you, can, you don't have to like reschedule, you're just like, oh, yeah, I've got half an hour, I'll just bang this out.
0: And so that that really worked, and I know now I've already shown. I want the kids to watch it. Obviously, uh, I want my wife to watch it, and it's a much easier sell to um, just to do that quick thirty-four minute. Um, and especially now, you know, they're lucky in the fact that they've spoken to some of the guests that you that you use, and um, so they hear the they hear the voice, and they're like, "Oh wait, I know that voice," and then they can put the uh, the the faces to it, and that. That keeps the hook there, and it keeps people coming back. It's like, okay, who who's going to come in next? Um, we should probably definitely shout out the guys that you used. Do you um, do you have a, a a definitive list of of everybody that you used for uh, the narration?
1: Oh, that's a good question. Um, I don't, and I can probably I can probably run through. I mean, I spent so much time in the in the weeds with it that I can pr- probably run through everyone. But then I'm gonna. For- Oh, I'm going to forget. You'll forget someone
0: up. and, yeah, exactly. Here we go. I get, I to the, get to the final page. I've
1: got i I'm um, here. So you've got um, the guys from WTF happened in 1971. Um, that, that, that was kind of the thing that really inspired me to start working on the film is, is listening to, to Ben and Colin talking about, um, you know, their, their ideas. And they actually talked about wanting to make a film... Um, and and so that's sort of what inspired me. It's like oh yeah maybe um, you know maybe we don't need hundreds of thousands of dollars or or to all get together to do this. Maybe you know there's so much good stuff already out there. Um, so yeah, they were really critical to the idea. Then um, then you've got I think the next person who pops up is Ron Paul, and he's like a bit of a hero <laughs> who sort of pops up through all my stuff. Um, he's sort of like the the voice of reason, and I didn't. I I really w- wasn't aware of him um, when he was running his presidential campaign back in uh, t- um, two thousand and whatever year it was two thousand and eight. So you know I was late to discover the the sort of genius of Ron Paul, um, but yeah he was he was sort of instrumental to the to the story as well. Uh, then you've got. This guy, G. Edward Griffin, who I don't... hes hes a uh, He wrote the book The Creature from Jekyll Island. Um, and so, you know, he talks a lot about... Uh, you know, he's been talking about this kind of stuff for decades about central banking and how it's sort of... It's not just misguided, but it's actually a, a, a bit of a scam and, like, a malevolent scam in that these bankers came together, um, you know, in 1913... And put together this institution and, and sold it to the public as as if it was in the public interest, but but really it was just a, a cartel arrangement to protect the interests of the of the bankers. Um, and there's a couple of other sort of economists, I guess, that are that are not bitcoiners, like guys like Murray Rothbard, um, Milton Friedman's in there. Um, you know these these guys who you know, it's lectures for, from, um, you know, some of them are probably from the 50s or 60s and it's just the same ideas keep coming up. Um, some other guys who like aren't really Bitcoiners but they're, they're into sound money and Austrian economics like Philip Bagus, um, Roy Sebag's another one. Um, uh, another guy's Dan Sanchez from, from the Mises Institute. So a lot, a lot of lectures, um, you know, about Austrian economics. And then I think you've got your sort of, cast of the usual suspects, um, like like Saferdean, Saferdean, who, who, who really is sort of the backbone of the, of the story. Uh, Robert Breedlove is in there, you know, his, his take on this stuff is amazing. Um, I'm trying to think who else. Preston Pish, obviously, um, you know, he's been a real inspiration for me. Jimmy Song is in there talking about inflation. Um, Michael Goldstein is there like he's uh, he's another person who I just could listen to all day Um, and Guy Swan from from Bitcoin article kind of brings up the sums it up at the end so that I think that covers everyone who uh, who appears in the film
0: and uh, yeah I love the fact that you've got all of these like OGs in there and um, when when you hear their voices it's like god damn it like they talk so much sense um and you know as a as a bitcoiner you 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 just you hooked to the film immediately and the way that you do it and cut up that that audio um and we talked about this briefly on the the little twenty one ism um interview that we did um about just going for it like not reaching out to these guys and not worrying about copyright laws and not worrying about um how they might feel with with using some of their content. Can you talk us through that? Like, w- was that a, a snap decision or was that something that you kind of ummed and ahed on for a little while?
1: It was a snap decision. It, it's, it didn't really have much of a an incubation period. I was just, you know, I've got a couple of guys, um, friends of mine back here in Australia who have, um, you know, sort of on board with with Bitcoin and we've just got a, a group chat going It's sort of, it's nice to, you know, you, you don't meet many people in real life, or well, don't meet many people in real life full stop at the moment with um, the restrictions we've got here in Melbourne, but, um, you know, you don't often get to talk about about Bitcoin or, 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 or there's not many people who are willing to listen to you pine on monetary economics in the real world. So, you know, we've got a little group where we share things back and forth and, yeah, it just came on me all of a sudden. It's like, you know what, this... This is an awesome idea for a for a documentary, and you know the same day I went up and sat down and kind of put put together what I found. Um, you know I had that clip in my head from um, from the you know it's about about what the fuck happened in 1971, and I found that um, this this film of Charles de Gaulle talking about you know the. The 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 US going off the dollar standard, and him talking about um, about wanting to get his gold from the US, and, and how it was causing, you know, this dropping the gold standard was causing the US to go into debt, or be able to go into debt for free. Um, so I just had these clips and sort of threw them together, and all in one day, I sort of almost had that little little trailer, and yeah. So not much more thought went into the into it than that. It was just straight straight into it
0: mate that's awesome so you, you touched on what is um going on in melbourne right now because um at the time of recording it seems to be like the little clips that we see on twitter that it seems to be pretty um draconian over there what what's um can you give the listeners a little insight to what's going on in australia which is supposed to be the land of uh, the good old mates and um doing what you doing what you do um but it seems like it seems like hell.
1: It's not good, and and unfortunately, we're in Melbourne. We've got the worst of it. Like, you know, in a lot of other parts of Australia, life is is not that far off being normal. I mean, you, most of the borders between the different states are, are still sealed. Um, but yeah, we sort of, you know, you had you, you had that initial outbreak back in March, and then like a lot of other. Other places, it, it it plateaued and started to go down fast, and then um, you know looked like you'd sort of got got a handle on the, on the virus, and then for, for whatever reason, um, there was another outbreak, specifically in Melbourne and in the state of Victoria, and just went crazy, like much larger than um, than the first outbreak in the whole of Australia, so. And to be honest, I try and avoid following the mainstream media and following the news. It just um, so I'm, I'm actually not that up to speed on a lot of the details. Um, you know, it just kind of <laughs> makes me angry if if I listen to that. But so so Victoria, the state of Victoria, then went into another crazy lockdown. Um, and it seems like it's it's the most um, stringent lockdown in the entire world. Like we've. Thankfully, I live outside of the city of Melbourne. Like I live on a property about an hour, an hour and a half out of town. So we're actually in a we're not as as restricted as the metropolitan zone. But they've got a curfew, so you're not allowed outside your house after eight pm. Um, and there's stories of people getting in trouble from the police just going to put their bins out on the curb, or um, yeah. So so what um, you know what possible Reason that they could have for, for a curfew. Um, so there's obviously no scientific reason, so it's, it's almost like um, you know, that must have something to do with the, the need to control, the want to project power. Um, and this, this, the worrying thing for me is how many people seem to agree with it and think it's a, it's a good idea. Like those of us who are concerned about the, the infringement on civil liberties... Um, seem to be in a very small minority. Um, I mean, you are finally starting to see... You know, we've just been told that it's uh, it's just been announced this week that there's an extension to this lockdown for, for another two weeks, which takes it up to something like 14 weeks. And then you've got this road map, in inverted commas, uh, people can't see me shaking my head, but um, about how and, and how many cases we have to get down to before they go to the next... You know, it's all this fancy language about you know Faye we go from stage four to stage three like as if they had this this plan in place from from the beginning. Um, but yeah it's just I think that's really demoralized everyone is there's no end to you know there's restaurants aren't going to open gyms can't open um, for, for potentially for months and if we don't it's like if we don't get our case numbers down to basically zero, we can't go back to, to normal life. And, and that's sort of just a completely unrealistic expectation. And unfortunately, by setting these goals, the government's like backed itself into a corner. And you have seen this all over the world is, you know, they, they make these um, predictions and then things don't work out and, and they can't ever admit that they're wrong. So they just have to double down on it. Um, and, and so things kind of get worse and worse. So, yeah, it's a bit of a, a demoralising place to be right now and, um, you know, pretty, pretty shameful. These, these videos of, of police arrest, going to people's houses and arresting them, uh, you know, it, it doesn't make me feel good. That's the image of Australia that's being projected around the world.
0: Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's crazy. Uh, and, and like you said, you know, it's, it's shocking the amount of people that are seemingly okay with it Uh, like you know yeah this is for the greater good and you're like (laughs) how how can it be like you know but here's a question i don't know how i would have if this had happened like 10 years ago before i was like you know truly down the bitcoin rabbit hole how would i have how would i have reacted would i have been just like like in that mindset. Do you think, do you credit the way that you're thinking now a little bit to like being down the rabbit hole? Absolutely. Uh,
1: uh, maybe not 100%, um, but I, I think I just would have, that's actually a, a really good question that I, that I haven't thought about um, I think that I would because yeah, it's not it's it's Bitcoin. You know, I was I was interested in in economics and, and Austrian economics, but but it wasn't until Bitcoin that I sort of got interested in the, the political philosophy underpinning that um, and 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 the, you know the idea of sort of um, minimal to, to no government being being what you want. Um, I think I would have just had the shits with it in, in, a, in the most general sense. But I think now um, I've sort of got a framework with which I can and put forward a, a coherent argument as to, to why I don't think it's a good idea. Um, but, yeah, actually I would have to reflect on that as to how I would, um, you know, how I would have reacted um, yeah, 10 years ago or before I, I was thinking about, in, about any of this. Um, yeah, it's really hard to say. Yeah, I mean, it. it's, I,
0: I would love to say I would be like, no, no, I'd be, um, you know, of the same mindset, but I just don't think I would have been, uh, you know, I think I, I have to credit um, the, this Bitcoin journey to, to so much of a fundamental shift in the way I uh, interact with the world and, you know, think about different things. And um, if I see, you know, I avoid the news pretty much at all costs, but if something comes across your Twitter feed or something gets mentioned, um, you know, Downstairs in a conversation, or when you meet um, your friends and uh, they start bringing up everything that's going on, you're just like, "Oh man, <laughs>
1: you know." <laughs> I was at a,
0: um, <laughs> I was, I was. We, we're we're we allowed to move around here in France. We were at barbecue on uh, Friday night with um, a bunch of boomers. Yeah, a, a a no a normie boomer barbecue, and you're just like, "Oh my god," the stuff that was getting discussed. And you're just like, wow, I would have probably been knee-deep in these conversations before Bitcoin and probably following along with the narrative. But now it's to the point where I just can't say anything because it's to them it's too controversial. Does that make sense?
1: No, I, I feel exactly what you're saying and I, I'm the same. Yeah, it's just, it's not, yeah, I, I try not to to bring it up um you know, in, in normal conversation, uh, in, unless you know, unless something leads to it or someone asks, but I think and and yes, yeah, so I agree with you. And I think for me, the difference was that actually, I in in years gone by, I I was I wasn't actually knee deep in those conversations because I was just I, I would say I was very apathetic about politics or any of this stuff. I mean, I'm still you know now I I'm even more apathetic about. Political process, but I guess for a for a specific reason. Whereas before, I just I just couldn't find the the interest. Like even um, even before I I um, started on this particular journey, you know, I didn't want to vote. I, I couldn't bring myself to be interested in picking one political party over another. Um, yeah, it was just a just a I just had a general state of apathy about about all about these kind of things. And so now. I, I find myself, when, when the conversation turns political, I actually chafe and, and want to get, uh, you know, jump in and, and say my part, which I never wanted to do before, but sometimes it's wise to just nod and, and um, you know, and just go along with it. <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. And on on your point there, like, um, you know, you didn't want to vote. What's going on in the US now, they're getting out. It's like, um, make sure you vote, make sure you vote, all of this nonsense. But in, in your kind of... Um, well, in my mind I know what I feel would you say a no vote is a vote uh,
1: yeah I think I think it, it is in that when I I know for me that when I get that letter in the mail I, um, with the way it works in Australia obviously it's compulsory to vote so if you don't vote and I just forget to be honest because there's local council elections and there's Regional or state elections. so you get this thing in the mail, and, and it says, "Oh, um, you know, why didn't you vote?" Uh, and I usually make up something like, "Oh, I was travelling or or whatever I can think of. And and sometimes you just have to pay the fine, which is like eighty dollars or a hundred dollars. And and now when the next time it comes around, I'm looking forward to writing on that thing, like that. I, that it's a, you know, it's not a religious belief, but but I feel very strongly that that. I don't want to vote for a specific political reason because I I don't believe this political structure is helping me. In fact, I think it's it's oppressing me to a certain extent. So yes, I think not. I mean, for me, I guess it's 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 good in a way in that that it can't be confused with apathy. Like I have to make a statement to not vote. Whereas in in the U.S., where um, you know most people don't vote just just because. You know, maybe they haven't really thought thought it through. They just can't be bothered or can't get around to it. But yeah, I think um, I think a no vote is um, is absolutely um, you you make making a vote of your own preference.
0: Man, that's crazy. You get fined if you don't vote. Yeah, that's like so. You've got this. You've got this threat of violence behind <laughs> the fact that like this is nuts. That's I, I mean democracy. Like, like that, that that
1: is antithetical, right there, isn't it? Like yeah, it hold a gun to your head you no must participate in the democracy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. It's funny that it's funny to because you know you grow up here and that's just it, it's the most normal thing. You know, even even now, I've never really questioned it until you're just asking me to explain it. it would, it's just it's just part of the scenery. You just grow up with it and never even think twice. So is that not the case in say say the UK? You just no it's not is it compulsory it's not compulsory to vote
0: no hmm as far as i'm aware um uh, but yeah, i mean no yeah no, I'm pretty sure it's not
1: yeah 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 well the uh That's the threat weird. of violence is never far from uh from us here in australia but yeah maybe i'm i don't know what what your listeners are going to take away from what they think goes on here, but it's a um <laughs> yeah, we, vote, we all thought
0: it, it was. was we all thought it was surfing and barbecues, man. Yeah. You know?
1: <laughs> well, this is the thing, isn't it? Is it um, you know, with with the government that it's all fine? Uh, and and this is the um, you know, this is the argument that I come up against when I, when I do bring this up with with people is that they say, oh, you know, you're just you know, you're it's a conspiracy theory, or, or the, the you know, you, the government has your best intentions. Um, you know, in, in whatever it's doing, it's looking out for your best intentions and not, you know, I've always been happy to accept that, but, um, and I wonder if, if the, the veneer in Australia is starting to crack um, a little bit with, with what's happening here in the last few months. People are starting to realise like, oh, um, wait a minute, you know, maybe the, you know, I've always taken such a laid-back approach to this, but 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 actually... Maybe there's a problem here, and maybe there is some kind of um, conflict at a at a deeper level between me and and my government, and the classic um, issue here in Australia, and this this is a can of worms that I um, that probably don't want to open. But like we don't, obviously have um, you know it's illegal to own own firearms uh, in Australia. We don't have any you know anything like in the US where that where that's a constitutional right. Um, and I've always, you know, that's another one of those things that you grow up with and you just never question it. And we've always, for the, for the last 20 years, smugly sat back and laughed at, at the Americans, you know, how stupid are they, um, you know, that, that they, they all walk around with guns and, and you get these mass shootings. Look at us here in Australia. We, um, you know, we got rid of all our guns. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying, I'm not actually going to argue one side or another, but you sort of, you start to think like, you watch those videos of the police breaking down these these people's doors and you go, wait a minute, what, what if that was me? Like, what if, what if the police came and knocked down my door for a reason that I thought was not legitimate and in front of my family and, and locked me up and took me away? I mean, I, look, I make controversial statements on the internet about the government all the time. Like, I've made, just made an entire film about about how I think that the government is illegitimate. So maybe I need to worry about this. Um, so yeah, it just it, 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 this whole coronavirus um, has, has hopefully at least made everyone sit back and just rethink these opinions that have just been drilled into them um, over a lifetime that, that they've never questioned before.
0: And coming back to the original point, Bitcoin does change you, you know, your, your fundamental thinking. And, um, of course we get exposed to completely different people and they are, you know, they can be quite shouty on Twitter about certain, certain subjects, but it definitely opens your mind and gets you looking at the other side of the coin. Um, okay, well let's do a rabbit hole story. And what, what on earth brought you to Bitcoin? I mean, how did you find it? Why did you find it? And, um, you know, what was that initial kind of touch point for you?
1: So I've been interested in ec- just economics in general for a long time. And I, and this is, I'm going back a long way now, but and I think this is an interesting part of the story in that I, I remember I was probably 16 years old, so I'm still at high school and I took up economics and um, well, I really enjoyed it. Um, uh, you know, fold it through to university. But then, you know, in the first year of university, I'd sit in these economics lectures and I'd just be scratching my head. I'd just, I just, I just, it was, and, and I'd try and read these textbooks and, and there was these mathematics and this theory. And, you know, and it wasn't as if I was dumb, like, or I wasn't trying, but I just, I just, didn't make any sense to me whatsoever. Um, and I remember even even at that stage before I'd heard about any of this, um, you know, writing, a, it was like a parody, um, you know, short story about economics and how, you know, whatever thesis you put forward and back it up by, by modern economics, you can put forward the counter argument and back that up as well. Like it's, 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 it's just got no relevance to, to the real world and so I sort of drifted off in my studies to different areas I just I just got sick of economics um, but you know I'd always kind of had that that I guess interest and so I, I um but this is even now fast forward to a couple of years ago um, this is still before before I knew anything about Bitcoin I learned about Austrian economics and I I'm trying to pinpoint uh, the the you know, where I first found out about that. I think it was probably from reading um, Nassim Taleb's books, which, which are they're they're very general. But he, you know, that sort of led me um, led me in that direction. He's got a uh, Taleb ran a hedge fund with a guy called Mark Spitznagel, um, and and he's got this fascinating book called it's called The Dao of Capital. Um, and it's all about his approach to investing and approach to life, which is basically, you know, it, the 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 more the longer and the more roundabout by which means you take to to get to your ends, kind of kind of the um, the, the more effective they can be. It's like this 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 kind of long essay in how having a, a longer time bre- preference and and prioritizing long-term future outcomes um, can be in your best interest. And this is specific to investing. And so that led me to things like um, there's this amazing book by a guy called Henry Hazlitt um, called Economics in One Lesson. I mean, that's an old book now. It's probably from the 40s or 50s, and that's, um, you know, a classic of of Austrian economics. And I started reading these books and realising that there was this entire school of thought in economics that, made so much more sense to me than the stuff I'd been taught at school and university um, but but it was just not something I was never exposed to and so you know that got me interested in in the cr- creation of money and central banking and and gold and gold as money. so I sort of um, you know for a long time before I was into bitcoin i was I was interested in gold um, you know I was reading books by guys like James Rickards where they talk about um you know that they share a lot of uh points with with the Bitcoin community and that they see the problems with uh, you know with the current system of central banking and our the, our financial system and that that that's an unsustainable system um but but they talk about this this potential return to a gold standard which I think even at the time i I just thought was Impractical because we sort of tried that that and, and failed, and I didn't see the reason or why it, it could work again. And so yeah, then I, I I um you know just just through learning more about um, investing in general, I was listening to um, I used to listen to Preston Pish's podcast, the Investors podcast, and he started bringing on guests talking about Bitcoin. Um, and that's what really got me interested. He had uh, Thurdemister on. I think he had Plan uh, Trace Mayer, Plan B, and um, you know I remember just my eyes popping uh, listening to some of this stuff. And and someone mentioned that somewhere along the line in in those conversations, the Bitcoin Standard was mentioned. So I went home and and ordered the Bitcoin Standard um, on my Kindle and. Know, just wolfed that down in, in a day or two, and and that was it. I was sort of hooked from there.
0: Wow, I mean that's that's another nail in the coffin for mainstream education, right? Like uh, that, there's still probably that course you sat. How many years ago was that? Like you know, it's probably still the same.
1: Fifty, yeah, that's probably going back fifteen years. Um, or those those high school courses I'm talking about. That's like twenty years ago, and yeah, nothing. <laughs> absolutely nothing will have changed. Um, and so, yeah, you wonder, yeah, you just realise. And so then, yeah, for example, I've done, um, I've done um online courses about economics and you just, you know, paid 100 bucks or something for that and the, the access to hundreds of hours <laughs> of, of incredible content um, compared to, to sitting in a lecture theatre with 200 other people um, you know, listening to this nonsense. Uh, yeah, it was. You know, I, I enjoyed my my time at university from a social point of view. Um, you know, that I made friends. So I, you know, I have a soft spot for for university education, for, for just because just that was a good time of my life. But um, I could have. Ta- I could. It'd be great if you could just get rid of the actual class. Um, and um, yeah, just spend a few hours on YouTube and, and you'd probably learn more, you'd learn more, you wouldn't have that um, brain damage um, that you'd have to then undo. The, the interesting thing is that I have these, these conversations with my, fa- my own father, so I went to, to Sydney University he, and studied economics. He went to Sydney University and studied economics um, in the 1970s and it was the, s- the same stuff um you know the same keynesian um economic theories that that advocate government intervention um in the economy and in the money supply and um so he and, and you know he's i have to give him credit that he he's very receptive to my um you know my take on things and he, and he's kind of come around like he's um you know uh, an advocate of Bitcoin now as well. But um, you could see that the decades of, of this almost indoctrination about how the economy is supposed to work. Um, yeah, so it's not not like nothing's changed in 20 years. Nothing's changed in, in certainly the last 50 years.
0: Yeah, and I think Robert Breedlove says in your, um, well, he said it somewhere, but you used it in your, in your film. Um, you know, he, 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 to paraphrase, you know, I don't want to speak hyperbolically, but I think... You know, we're living through the greatest con that you know mankind has ever known. Something along those lines, um, and it, it's it's so true.
1: Yeah, absolutely, I I agree, and I I don't think it's it's a a conscious scam. In that, in that, you know, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. In that, I don't think there's people in a back room somewhere um, consciously. Going about this, I just think it's um, it's it's a matter of of looking at, at the incentives, and I think um, you know K- Keynesian economics. Well, Keynes, the man, was obviously a very influential person um, in the UK um, and, and in the in the world in general. Um, at you know, and he he play, actually played an actual role, um, you know, shaping the, the monetary system. But um, I think it's just that the incentives were aligned in that, that if, you're, if you're a government, you, you can read those theories and hear, it's like music to your ears, that, that what you're doing by intervening um, in the economy and in society in general is, is a good thing and that, that central planning is, is what we need and that you know, the free market, if left to its own devices, would career off and, and, and crash and, and go through this endless cycle of boom and bust. Um, so the, these people, and, and you listen to central bankers today, like if you listen to Jerome Powell speak about, you know, wh- wh- what the intentions of, of the Federal Reserve are or, you know, you hear him, Try and explain he was asked a question about whether he thinks central banking and quantitative easing is a cause of in, of wealth inequality um and, and his answer to that is obviously no which which we would all take um you know take umbrage with but it's like they're just not they're, they're just their whole life and, and world and purpose has led them to this certain point. I generally think they think that they're acting in, in everyone's best interests. So I don't think it's 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 malevolence, but um, it's just it's just this um, kind of institutionalisation of, of these self-reinforcing ideas, and, as government is like this this black hole of gravity that just grows and and grows, and more government begets more government until um, you know eventually the whole of society is going to get swallowed up by the government and and you see it happening in in Australia where with this this virus where um, they released some statistics where you know the average income for for people in the private sector in Australia is down by I don't know what let's say 30% um, some some significant number you've got all you know the un- we have this scheme um, where the the government's paying employers to to pay the wages of, of people who are, are out of work, which basically just a, a scam to so they can avoid posting the real unemployment figures. But you see, government salaries have gone up since March. And so by no conscious decision, I you know, certainly no one from the from the government's getting fired. In fact, they're all they're increasing their wages. So you just slowly but surely see the, the size of government. In terms of its its absorption of society's resources, grow and grow more and more capital gets sucked into that, and and we know by the econ by Austrian first principles economic analysis that that the government inherently wa- wastes resources and and destroys capital, um, and so I think that you know they've, they've been able to kick the can down the road for a long time, but but eventually you know we, we can't say when, but but. It has to all catch up at some point.
0: And Are they uh, printing cash in in Australia? Like they are um, around uh, the rest of the world. Obviously, in the US and European Central Bank, Bank of England uh, have all gone to the printers. Uh, has the same happened there?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, they they have. Um, you know, they they're monetizing the debt. You know, Australia um, is in an interesting situation because we don't have the kind of debt to GDP levels that. They have in the US or in um, you know obviously in Japan or in Europe um, that that's much more modest so I guess we've we've still got more runway um, in that respect but they're certainly print I mean um, yeah they're certainly printing printing money and monetizing debt for example they're doing um, they're doing y- what they call yield curve control here in Australia so the the, the central bank is is targeting the longer end of the yield curve so so Australian government bonds um you know of longer duration up 10 years or, or what have you and and keeping that that at a certain yield um and that's almost like the federal reserve is looking at that as 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 like this world uh, pilot program um and they're watching that and i think we'll we'll go down that same path um i mean <coughs> they're already pretty much doing it. And, and quantitative easing and, and yield control and all these sort of euphemisms um, that they use. In the end, they all just mean one and the same thing, which is um, the central bank printing money to, to buy the, the debt of its own government. So just just inflating away the debt.
0: And then the Cantillon effect, that kicks in, and um, they all get richer at the top. Like you said, perfect example. If government you know, um, workers' wages are rising, <laughs> That's it. That's it, plain and simple. Cantillon. They are the ones closest to the spigot. And um, by the time it gets down to those people that are on the street and don't have a job anymore, prices of day to day goods would have gone through the roof. And their purchasing power is just getting less and less.
1: Yeah, we, we, it's very evident here, especially in, um, you know, and, and it's unfortunate, I guess, in, in that, um, you know, a lot of those sectors where you know for example it's 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 doctors and nurses or or people in the, you know police well let's not go into police but firemen or, or people in the public sector who are doing a, a, an important service to the community but um you know and that that's their particular calling so you, you can't blame these kind of people for being employees of the government um but because they have no choice the government monopolizes those sectors um but yeah and so you see you see that um, you know the, that that cantillon process occurring where, but me you know you especially see it in in the in the bureaucracy that's you know in that inner sanctum like the, the closest people to the money spigot like it was just in the news um, this this past week here in Victoria how you know the premier the you know the so the this this subsidy they're providing to ordinary people is is. Fifteen hundred dollars a fortnight, and that's about to go down to um, to a thousand dollars. This is for people who are, have been forced out of work because the government has ordered them to to not go to work. Uh, uh, so that's barely a subsistence. Um, uh, I don't I don't think you can survive um, in a city in Australia on that amount of money. Whereas the the premier himself, his salary is something like four hundred and fifty thousand dollars and you know he his 25 cl- closest advisors have an average salary of a hundred and seventy thousand dollars or something and they all received a pay rise in in March like just when this um, this outbreak took, took effect so yeah you see that that process occurring and then obviously in Australia the big thing is is how um, you know this. This affects real estate prices. So Sydney, in particular, and Melbourne, some of the highest real estate prices in the world um, over the, over the past couple of decades. The rises you've seen to the point where ordinary ordinary people just get priced out of the market, um, and and then you see all this money coming from Asia, particularly China, where they're trying to get their money out of China, and they're they're buying up property in Australia. So. You know, you've got, you've got a generation of people who um, who can't afford to to buy a home um, so so they're the victims of that that process as well so maybe um, you know if the coronavirus does one thing it's sort of at least readjusting the the, the purchasing power of real estate to the point where um, where people of a younger generation might might be able to buy something and live in it.
0: What I worry though is the complete opposite happens because um, I've just um, been getting through um, Parker Lewis's latest piece. uh, Bitcoin is um, is one for all, Mm. and I'm listening to Guy Swan's read on it. And part one is about the price stability mandate that the Fed has, which um, governments around the world will have. So, you know, they have this mandate, basically like this this magic wand to wave to try and keep prices stable in. In air quotes, listeners, for our best interests. So if prices do start falling, if if like like you say, like the the correct price of like a condominium in, in or apartment or whatever in Sydney should be nowhere near the levels that it is right now or in Melbourne. If those prices were to crash and correct as they should be allowed to do then yes, that would open the door for for many younger generations to get in on the property ladder and, you know, start looking after themselves a bit a bit more and making um, a go of things. But with this price stability mandate, they won't let that happen, right? This is what happened in 2008. Um, you know, so many people um, were bailed out. Like the, the, the asset owners were bailed out. Those people that had the houses um, that, you know, had a certain amount of mortgage paid off, they were bailed out. The the rest of the people were just like foreclosed on. Forget you. Off you go. And let's keep the prices of real estate nice and high. Uh, and it's <laughs> when you realise that you're like, oh
1: my god, like the
0: the whole damn thing is rigged.
1: Yeah, absolutely, I agree. And I read that piece myself um, last week, and it's it's fantastic as you, you, all of Parker Lewis's. Um, pieces are. And, and you're exactly right. This thing about price stability is, it, yeah, and that set off a light bulb in my head as well. And, and you realise that, that when you think about these things from first principles, he he's absolutely right. Like the mandate of price stability is actually a very destructive mandate um, to, to be trying to implement because prices are information. Like that's how the only way that society and and the economy and, and civilization in general can organise itself and progress is by, you know, all of us on an individual level making, making these decisions about how we want to exchange with each other. And the way we coordinate is through those prices. And so when prices... When the market is sending a signal for prices to fall, as you say, like um, you know, this is a perfect example. We've had an event in in the world, and 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 the the free market wants to react to that. Like that, like real estate prices should fall in these city centers if people are, you know, these huge companies don't need these big offices anymore. If people are leaving the cities to go to the country, you should see that reflected in the in the market. But yeah, as you say oh, the Federal Reserve has a, has a price stability mandate, so you, they'll come in and, well, they, they say, oh, we do whatever it takes, but their mechanism, you know, that is, these days is, you know, they, they've used up so much gunpowder that they've sort of only really got a, a psychological mechanism, um, and, and that's why you're seeing these guys go on 60 minutes and say, we have infinite cash that we're going to throw at this um, and so, from a psychological point of view, that seems to work. I mean, you saw, you've seen it work in the stock market and the, the sort of V-shaped recovery. Um, and so, yeah, prices aren't allowed to fall. So, real estate, um, real estate prices stay stay the same. And, and you know, the, the central bankers pat themselves on the back and, and think they've done a good job. But really, all that's done is is created this huge distortion in the market and Inevitably, it leads, if prices don't reflect anu- the underlying reality and if they're not allowed to go down as well as up, then capital and resources can't, by definition, be allocated efficiently. So you know th- that the end result is that um, we're seeing wastage, we're seeing destruction of capital, and we're s- that must lead to lower standards of living. Like that, That's just A, f- leads to B, leads to C. So, yeah, Parker, Parker Lewis has has such a way with words to to make these things clear. Uh, but, yeah, just it, you just see through the the whole um, charade of central banking. And once again, I, I don't know that that's, that's inherently them trying to con us. I just think they just are living in an alternate reality where they think that they're doing good, but they just don't fundamentally understand economics.
0: And another piece of the puzzle just clicked into place for me listening to you and thinking about um, Parker's piece, and if you look at the US in you know as a perfect example, they have the price stability mandate. Let's keep um, prices stable. And then above them, who do you have? You have a president that has a very big interest in real estate prices, considering he's got how many properties just in New York, Trump Tower, um, how many other properties in New York, how many casinos, how many golf clubs. He's going to be pushing very, very hard because that is a personal interest to make sure property prices do not crash and correct to where they should be going.
1: Mm, absolutely, and um, you know, all, you can't get to that point in um, you know in politics, particularly in America, without being incredibly wealthy um, to, to begin with. So, yeah, these people are not, um, and, and this is the inherent problem you get with with. with even, you know, we, we like to pat ourselves on the back and say we've got a, a democratic system so it's fair and it, it, it works in everyone's best interests. But unfortunately, um, you know, you get this inherent problem where, where, of course, these people are going to act um, in, in their own best interests. I mean, you know, Trump, as you say, you know, he's not going to preside over um, real estate falling. You know, he's going to put, put pressure on the, the Federal Reserve to um, to keep doing what they're doing, you, yeah, you're seeing these cracks emerge where th- where they don't really even. You no, know, it's hard to pretend that um, the central bank is is totally insulated and separate from from the government. Like you, you see them almost acting hand in hand. And pa- Jerome Powell himself, um, you know, he's got a, a ten million plus dollar portfolio of of these um, managed funds. You know, with you know. Blackrock and Vanguard and and you know these these kind of back backroom dealings where these these kind of institutions are they're now administering all these um, these financial kind of flows for the government and for the Federal Reserve like they're they're helping the government buy stocks um, yeah it's it's just um, the, the and then all these people they they leave public office and it's a revolving door into these high paying jobs in the in the private sector. Um, yeah, the the conflicts of interest are just um, you know it, it really does make make you wonder how anyone can be in that position and, and act or how hold their hand up and say I'm acting in the public interest.
0: But get this: if your friend is a CEO of a company and he tells you. Hey, Richard, um, we've just found this new little widget that is going to um, absolutely cut production time and improve our product by God knows how much X. And you go and buy their stock, you get put in prison for insider trading.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's like, it's, you know, it's, (coughs) it's, these things are such, are so gray um, and, and they're just open to interpretation. And it's just the, the story that's as old as time where, you know, those people who are in positions of power and privilege can easily, um, you know, weasel the way out of these things through through the interpretation. Um, yeah, it's, they're all, it's all just another example of, of any time you try and create a system that's, that's not just a, you know, a, a pe- people left to their own devices. Um, this is the problem with just the concept of legislation in general is that... Um, you know, it, it's, just, it, it's an inherent contradiction where if, if people are making law, like if laws are getting made, then there has to be a group of people that are, that are making those laws. And inherent in that system is those lawmakers granting themselves s- certain special privileges and it creates a self-perpetuating system. Um, yeah, so there's, there's sort of no way out of that and you know, I, I wonder th- this year. You know, you, you mentioned earlier the the elections that they've got coming up, and just how chaotic the whole thing is looking over in the U.S. Whether um, you, know, you know, before I um, before I got interested in Bitcoin, when Trump was elected, I you know, I don't have as I said, don't follow politics closely, but you see Trump get elected, and you say, "Huh, well, that that pretty much just sums up." Uh, A a sort of, you know, an empire coming losing steam and kind of running to the end of its its course. Like when you have a president that's it's basically a parody. He's just a walking parody of the you know the concept of of a head of state. Um, And the scary thing is that if I was in the US, I see like. He's no—he's certainly no worse than the opposition in terms of the choice they've got coming up. He may be better. Like I wouldn't—I wouldn't want to be faced with that—that that choice. Um, you're definitely damned if you do and damned if you don't um, over there. And hopefully, um, you know, more people are starting to see that. You know, you think back to—I think back to when I when I was younger and more idealistic, and I saw Barack Obama get elected, and um, you know, you think, oh, you know, this is a. a, a a great thing, and, and there's still some um, legitimacy in the in the you know the um, the political process, and and now sort of 15 years later, you, you sort of start to realise that you know whoever gets elected to office, you know, the, the, the Republican or Democrat or whatever side of politics you're on, it doesn't make any difference. You know the government's still going to grow. Um, spending is still going to go up. Debt debt levels are going to go up. Um, you know, you, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. And and I think that at least it's getting to such a point of chaos that that even the average person is starting to perceive that at least now.
0: Well, I, I think it's safe to say you're damned if you don't buy Bitcoin. That's um, <laughs> one, one huge takeaway. Um, so let's let's get back to Bitcoin and what's um like your film you, you you put a lot of time and energy into that and i don't know maybe thanks covid for giving you the time to sit in your home for for two months to to get creative and to put your 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 mind and your skills back to work because you you taken a, a kind of a break from filmmaking right you you'd done the um the surfing and the snowboarding film uh, which i've seen the uh, the clips for which look amazing um but then you parked it what what brought you back to the filmmaking?
1: Yeah, I um, I did. I stopped working in um, in film a long time ago. I, I and I started another business which I've been been working on for a long time, and it's um it's a travel, we're in the travel industry, and so we just got totally smashed by by this whole thing. Um, and, you know, I was so so you know we the business is basically. I, I, on, shut down on, on ice. I mean, we thankfully we were, you know, sort of a, a lean enough in business that that we may yet survive to, to see the other side. Like we were already pretty much working from home, um, you know, and, and didn't have a lot of a lot of overhead. So, you know, hopefully we we come out the other side of that with with all our staff intact um, and, and the business still still there when the world starts traveling again. Um, but that just, um, yeah, I sort of fell into that, you know, I was interested in, you know, I always had that creative interest in film and, and, um, but, but, you know, I, I did also want to w- always want to start a business and I was interested in, in entrepreneurship and, and finance and economics. So, um, you know, I sort of, you, you know, I, I worked at that and worked and worked and, yeah, you get caught up in the day to day grind of, of running a business, and so yeah, I never I never went back to film, um, it, and it just became almost this this sort of representation of a time in my life when I didn't have much responsibility, and um, you know I could sort of travel around the world and and do whatever I want, um, and it, and I looked back fondly on that time, but I, but I didn't know when I'd ever. Um, come back to it you know I, I had a few ideas for for projects over the years but it if you approach it in a traditional way it's a, it's an expensive medium like you, you know if you want to make a film um sort of buy the book yeah you need a lot of money uh to, to do that properly just to first of all to make it and then then to distribute it and so um that always put, put me off as well and yeah so this you know this it came about this year where you know i was I was bursting to 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 create something about bitcoin um, and i I'd, I'd been writing like keeping keeping notes and trying to exp- sort of explore various ideas in writing but but found i wasn't i hadn't I hadn't struck upon anything that that someone else hadn't already said uh, expressed better than me so yeah I realized that that phil no no one had really explored Bitcoin through film in a way that I thought I liked. There there are documentaries out there about Bitcoin, but they're they're a few years old. I, I don't think they've aged that well. I don't think they've captured... There's this real sense of community and, and spirit, and, and, like, everyone's hanging out on, on Twitter, and it's like we've got this consensus about what our vision for, for what Bitcoin is and what it might be able to do for the future... And so, yeah, it was really an attempt to capture capture that spirit, um, and I think I think that that's sort of what what inspired me. It, it was really to to celebrate that, and I was sort of making it for the Bitcoin community almost um, and I guess if pe- but people have been saying that you know I thought maybe it might be pitched, uh, you know it hits the ground running pretty hard in terms of its analysis of of economics and money. And I thought maybe it wouldn't be that interesting to people who have got no idea about this, or it's their first dip in the in the pool of that. But yeah, I've been getting feedback saying people have been showing it to their significant other or to their friends or or what have you. So it seems like it is um, it it is having that effect as as well as a, as a bonus, which is good.
0: Mate, that's awesome. And your travel business, what what was it? What what was the what was it you'd built out? And I'm so sorry to, to hear that um, you, you're struggling with that.
1: So we um, we're sort of a tour a tour operator that sends people trekking and hiking and, and mountain climbing around the world. That that's the business, and it it came out of this um, this one particular trek, which is actually in Papua New Guinea, just to the north of Australia. There's a a track through the jungle up there called the Kokoda Track and it's where the Australians fought against the Japanese in the Second World War and so the Japanese had, um, you know, they, after Pearl Harbour and declaring war on on the US and, and entering World War Two, you know, they, they were making their way down through Asia, they'd bombed nor- Northern Australia by air, um, they, 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 Put forward this intention of of trying to invade Australia and so, um, you know, they landed in Papua New Guinea and, and it's this mountainous, remote, tropical jungle in the middle of nowhere and they were trying to cross over land from one side to, to, to the capital, Port Moresby on the other and the Australians went up to, to try and stop them um, and they, they fought along this, this jungle track and it's, it's a pretty remarkable story and that I think is, is sort of, you know, as Australians, we, we kind of often, there's this sort of cultural cringe or we, we sometimes aren't sure of our place in the world or what, what it means to really be Australian. And um, certainly for me at that time in my life, hearing the stories of these young men and, and, and women who were also in Papua New Guinea, but who went up there and fought, um, you know, it had a, a profound effect on me um, and so I really got interested in the history of that. Um, and I, so in, along with running the business, I also was doing a lot of historical research, speaking to a lot of these war veterans. Um, I wrote a book about, um, about this, the Australians who fought in that campaign and because they also fought in, um, before they were in Papua New Guinea, they were in the Middle East and they fought this really weird campaign in, in Syria and Lebanon against the French. Um, and, and all the politics behind that. So I, I got fascinated by that. Um, so so the business kind of grew out of the, the passion for that um, that experience. And then I sort of got together with a few other people who were more into the hiking and mountain climbing and the outdoors. And so we we kind of expanded from there to um, other parts of the world, like like Nepal and um, Af- Africa, Tanzania, and and just local stuff in Australia. So. So that was, um, that was the business. And then, um, yeah, it was funny. Like I think back even in um, January or February, we sort of, when, um, you know, when we first started hearing about the coronavirus, I remember we, we sat down and we thought, oh, you know, it's, it doesn't look like this is going to be a big deal. Like none of our clients have really um, really expressed concern yet. Um, you know, should, should be fine, like full steam ahead we're just going into our busy time of year. And then within a few weeks, um, yeah, the whole, everything just just fell apart. And so we spent most of this year um, sort of refunding people, basically. Um, so that's pretty demoralising when you're working long hours, just giving people back their, their money. Um, but as I said, look, it's, you know, I, I reflect on the whole thing and, um, you know, it's made... <sighs> Look, maybe I'm trying to sort of make a a diamond out of a lump of coal, but I do think that it forced me to to really take a hard look at myself and my life, and my priorities and my values. And you know, I lived and died for years over this business and whether you know if if it whether it made a profit or a loss. And and um, you know the you know you wake up in the middle of the night worrying about the financial statements. And um, I guess, uh, you know, and I I would have nightmares about something like this. Oh, what if, what if, um, you know, these countries, what if there was some violent incident and and we couldn't travel to this place and, and, or you'd think about worst case scenarios and and it'd keep you up at night. Well, this was what hit us this year is the worst, so much worse than, you could ever imagine in your wildest dreams and we've come come out the other side of it and you know it's not that bad and, and I think um, yeah look I there has been a, some positives that I take out of it and I think for me you know I was feeling sorry for myself in those early months but but now you know with the way this this whole thing's progressed and the lockdowns and the government reactions I feel Feel more. I feel worse for the people in those sectors where, like, it's just an arbitrary thing that the government has told them that they can't work. Like, I think even if there was no um, sort of state-imposed shutdown, I think naturally people would have just stopped international travel. I just think that would have people of their own accord would have just said, "All right, let's just let's just play it safe and not." travel this year. I think that probably would have happened regardless. But so I think that's just a fair sort of thing that we would have just had to deal with. But the people who, uh, you know, pub owners and restaurant owners and hairdressers and, I mean, they've even shut down, you know, gyms. You're not even allowed to go and mow someone's lawn here in Victoria um, or, or, work on a construction site outside. So it's those people who would, you know, in a normal sane society would just be getting back to, to, to business. Um, they're told that they're not allowed to go to work. Like they're, they're the people that I almost, I feel worse for now. Like that's just a, a horrible situation to be in.
0: Man. Yeah, exactly. And you know, Again, this comes back to like the question right at the beginning of the show. If you'd have gone through this experience, your business being, you know, basically shut down, um, if Bitcoin wasn't on your side, if Bitcoin wasn't, you know, part of you now, and uh, you hadn't you hadn't found it, how much differently would you've been would you be thinking and how much more worried and anxious would you be about the future?
1: <laughs> well, yes, absolutely. For, from a philosophical point of view, I'd um, you know, it'd be pretty depressing. But from a very practical point of view, like that's pretty much about we, we can't do our actual work, so my business strategy right now is, is basically buy Bitcoin. So I sort of converted all of the um, cash reserves that I can in, into Bitcoin in the hope that that will, um, you know, and that could be the, you know, if we fast forward twelve months or eighteen months, um, you know, that that may end up being the make or break in terms of whether the business can survive or not. But for me personally, ap- absolutely, it, it's just, um, you know, it's nice to have something that is is both a, an an investment opportunity in that I think. You know from from a very if, if you're just looking at at it purely from the point of view as as I want to get a return on my my investment, um, I think it's it's it has these asymmetric properties that make it just the, the the most attractive investment opportunity that that is out there, but that it's got all these other dimensions that you know as as I spend more and more of my time learning and reading and and meeting people and talking to people. You actually yeah it's it's like it's like this this one thing that we all think could be a a way out of this um in a in a good way so it it, yeah i'm thankful for that i would probably be in a personally in a in a bad place if i if i didn't have have this to because it just can just gets me up in the morning as well like i go to bed thinking about bitcoin i get up thinking about it i spend my day thinking about it um it, it it keeps me motivated. It's it's fantastic in that regard. As simple as that. If, and, and I've got to the point of view with my personal um, investment decisions that I'd rather be would rather be invested in Bitcoin and it turned out to be wrong than um, that I'd feel better about that than if I if I said no, it's too risky. I only want to allocate five percent. I'll stick I'll stick to to these other. Other traditional things, um, you know, that just, you know, from yeah, for me, it's more about, uh, you know, Bitcoin as a force for good in the world. That that's what motivates me now,
0: mate. That's that's so awesome. It's great to hear that you you took that. um, You know, it's one thing to take a personal decision, but you know, a business decision as well to invest into Bitcoin because obviously you had partners and staff that you you've got to look after, and this is a big for them, you know, that probably aren't down the rabbit hole as much as you, I, I, have a, I am of the firm conviction in like 12 to 18 months, they're going to be like you know, hugging you for for making that decision because they'll still have a job and a lot of your competitors would have gone out of business. But what you're doing is you're providing a runway to use the uh, travel pun um, for your business that uh, I think you've come back stronger. And, um, Sounds cool, like the shit you do. And I'm sure there's a bunch of Bitcoiners listening out there right now thinking, can't wait to get back on a plane. What's Richard's company? Will he accept Bitcoin to go on one of these tracks?
1: That's the next step. No, I, yeah, haven't quite been able to, oh, I haven't, I felt too crazy to um, to try and convince them to to let us accept Bitcoin. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, everyone everyone else in the business was, was good about that, entrusting me to make that decision. And I sort of, it's, you know, I said I'd go to a certain percent of, um, you know, of of the cash reserves and then you know what it's like, like you sort of can't, you you can't help yourself. Um, But, um, and and then I've also haven't, I haven't, I've just kind of taken and run with it. Like it's one of those, like a couple of weeks ago, I almost went back to everyone and and said, tried, you know, patted myself on the back and said, oh, hey, look at, look how amazing I am. You know, look at the Bitcoin price. Um, and it makes a fool of you pretty fast because <laughs> this week all of a sudden it's like uh, um, back, to the, back to the drawing board. So, yeah, I think I'm just going to keep, um, you know, no one else in the, in the business is that interested in it, I don't think. So, um, yeah, I'll just um, cop the, the, the volatility and, um, yeah, let's fast forward a year or two and, and see what happens. But, um, yeah, man, maybe in a year or two and, and the world goes back to normal. Um, you know, one thing I, I'd love to do is travel and, and meet some some people who I've who I've been talking to about Bitcoin and you know crack a beer and 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 you know sit down and, and talk about it in real life. That that you know nothing um, would make me happier than to be able to do that.
0: There's going to be a niche industry, man. You could be at the forefront of, and that's going to be. Um... Bitcoiners um, traveling to meet other Bitcoiners and do cool treks like you, you provide Bitcoin um,
1: travel because you could be an up and coming yeah. sector. It's like Absolutely. those, those um, you know, like Kontiki tours in Europe, where it's like eighteen to twenty mm-hmm. somethings only. It's like Bitcoin only. Like you can only be on this tour if you, you know, if you own Bitcoin.
0: If you're stacking sats, yeah, for sure. <laughs> that'd be uh, that'd be awesome. All right, man. Well. What's um what's the next project? Are you sitting still? Is this the end of the um the, the filmmaking or are you are you good to go again?
1: So yeah, I couldn't I couldn't help myself. I you know, I just I took a bit of a break and then I enjoyed the process so much that I wanted to try it again. You know, covering something related but slightly different. The other th- it's uh so the project I'm working on now it's it's a documentary version of a book called Anatomy of the State by Murray Rothbard. So it's, um, and, and once again, it's like, it's funny you mentioned this idea of, of co- I mean, the copyright of the, the actual material I'm putting into the book, but it was only the other day that I was like, oh, man, most, the, I think the, the the correct way to do this is to, like, go to the author's estate and and purchase the, the filmmaking rights to the to the, it's like oh god, like um, once again I just I've just do- dove into the deep end um, without asking anyone's permission. So hopefully that works out. Um, and I think it's because um, this is the thing that that the other path that Bitcoin's led me down is is I had that interest in Austrian economics, but um, it was really the the political philosophy that that the richness of the political philosophy that that underpins Bitcoin. Um, and that's something that you can take it all the way back to the, to these classical economists um, in, in the 19th century. And the the guys that were debating this in the, um, you know, in, in the 1990s, the, the sort of um, the crypto anarchists, the cypherpunks, they they had this vision of the world where, okay, you've got this fundamental problem in life where someone seems to always have a monopoly on violence and and violence and and the returns to violence, um, for better or worse, just dictate the, the the way humans organise themselves. But if we could build this world online, a private world, where people's interactions aren't in any way related to their real identity. It's like, okay, we can create this world that is out of the reach of government, but but more than that, it's a realm where violence just, just is rendered impotent and cannot exist by, by definition in that world. So humans can come together and exchange ideas products um, capital money and 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 do it in a in in a free market in the purest sense because the threat of violence is just not even thinkable in, in that realm and and that is a very it's not like a fly-by-night new idea like that builds upon this um, this sort of classical liberal tradition of which the, the founding of the United States is is one of the main examples but but, but but over the centuries has lost its way a bit. So, yeah, I was just fascinated by by the, the richness to, to to those layers underneath the the technical side of Bitcoin. So, it, yeah, the, the the latest you know the first film was was really about the money, whereas this is more about the the, the politics of of anarchy, I guess, and how. Um, yeah, how we, we, we might be able to exist um, in a world without government. Whether the answer to that is yes or no, um, I, I don't know. But yeah, there's something to be said that Bitcoin fundamentally changes that proposition as to whether that is possible or not.
0: Mate, I'm looking forward to that. Will that be another 35 minutes or yeah. is that one going to be? A, no, no, it's a, the yeah?
1: same, short and sweet, 30 minutes. I reckon that's um, that's the way to go. For sure, oh man,
0: yeah, that'll be very, uh, yeah, very well received within the uh, the Bitcoin community and hopefully the wider community. Um, so, last last few questions: You before you made this film, you were probably engaging in some way on, on Bitcoin Twitter, um, probably uh, part of the the talks or threads. Um, what would you say now? Now you've you know you you found your creative um, passion again uh to create something to help educate others what would you say to those other people that are perhaps lurking out there in the wings that you know have a skill or have a um a voice or can write or you know create a meme or something but holding back for whatever reason
1: yeah this has been a real lesson for me that that there's nothing to be gained by holding back i think that the, the people in this community are, are incredibly receptive and and everyone's been you know i was just a uh, a lurker on Bitcoin Twitter, I had zero followers. Um, you know, I'd never and zero posts, and um, and I. I'd, but I still felt like I was part of the community because I, I'd be watching. The, you know, this this conversation, and, and there must be so many people like that. And so, yeah, I reached out. Um, you know, you can imagine for for these guys getting a, a a message from someone they've never heard of about some some project like. You know they they would have every incentive to just ignore that, and then um, just about everyone was so good in, in the way they they responded to me, and I think so so I think it's it's just about finding what you want to say and how how you want to say it. Like I as I said I I was doing a lot of writing and just was hitting brick walls um, until I realised that that I was better off try, trying to go down the route of of doing something visual. Um and, and that just worked. I mean, I guess there's no guarantee that is the thing. Like like you just have to like I've in, in Bitcoin and in other areas of life, I've put something out. I've, I've worked hard on something and I've put something out there, and it hasn't worked in, in that it, it, it just hasn't taken off or didn't get the reception that I thought or just didn't just didn't get any traction. And and this t- and so the, that's the thing is there's no guarantee this time around um, you know, it, it, it seemed to it seemed I seemed to strike it lucky in that it, what I put out there did resonate and so I was able to to get that sort of and then it s- snowballed a bit and 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 got some attention and that was fantastic but I think for even with those those other projects of mine that were kind of false starts or 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 finished products that just fell on deaf ears or didn't work, wasn't as if that wasn't worth it. Like, I think whenever I committed to something and just said what I wanted to say or created what I wanted to create, it always, I always ended up in a better spot than when I started, even if it wasn't the result that I expected or, um, you know, I didn't, it didn't work out in the way I wanted, but, so, so I guess there's no guarantees about the result, but you know, I, I think the thing I realised is I just, you know, I got some good feedback on this project, and I just the next week I just sat back down at my desk and started working again, and, and I realised that um, I was happier just working and, and creating, and it was great to to interact on on Bitcoin Twitter and and kind of get out get this out there, but you know that that actually creates some creates some anxiety for me for me as well um, so so yeah there's no you know there's no it, it's not always going to be ra- be rainbows and, and everything work out but um, yeah you just have to you have to find out what you want to say and and i think there's just a there's something so life uh, there's a life force in in just just kind of Getting your hands dirty with something and, and and creating order out of out of chaos, even even if it's just within your own mind. So so I think um, yeah, there's there's nothing but to go for it and not hold back.
0: Yeah, very well said, man. Very very well said. Okay, last question then, and um, it's usually like if you had one red pill left to give to someone, who would you give that to and why? But I mean, your red pill is visual and. Um, if if there was one person that you would like to see hard money, uh, and then have that change their mindset around uh, you know what's going on and bring them into the rabbit hole of Bitcoin, who would that person be and why?
1: Oh, I you know I think that the the problem that we have is that the people who are in a position of power and, and could actually make a decision that might affect the outcome in terms of the way our, our economy or our society is organized they 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 go- like they're past the point of no return like they won't be they won't be convinced um, there's a oh, i forget which you know which writer talks about this but but that you you know you're you're sort of wasting your time like you know people like people who are are into modern monetary theory like it seems like the people in in government and in central banking are going down this path, which is a completely different path to um, to the way we think it sh- it should go. Like we know it's not going to end well, but yeah, if, I don't know. If there's anything to be gained by getting the film in front of someone um, in a position of power. So I think it's more like someone who someone young, like Lauren or 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 my kids, or someone might watch that and it m- and it might. Open their eyes in a way that when they do get forced into this pipeline of indoctrination, um, whether it's in a in a school or, or system, or just in the public discourse in general, you know they might be able to say, "Look, this just doesn't make sense," and they're not afraid to say, "This doesn't make sense." They're, they're like they call call out kind of BS for what it is. Uh, you know, I w- I just. Wish I had have been exposed to some of these ideas when I was younger and I wouldn't have just gone along with the, the, the sort of conventional wisdom without questioning it for so long. So, yeah, I think it's, it's someone young just starting out their journey, learning about this and maybe in several decades' time they might be in a position to actually influence the course of society for the better
0: nice answer mate nice answer so we need to get it on disney channel basically yeah. uh, <laughs> great
1: family viewing
0: yeah <laughs> right it's down to bitcoin twitter now to uh, to hashtag at disney and uh and Richard's film and uh see if we can't crowdsource that to happen mm-hmm. well mate um where can people find you let's um let's make sure you know Shield your travel business in, in case people do want to look into that for when we can travel again. And, um, of course, where can we go and find the movie and, and find yourself on, on
1: Twitter? Yeah, thank you. Uh, the business is called On Track Expeditions, On Track. So if anyone wants to jump on, and have a look at what we're doing. Um, but, yeah, it's really, I guess, the, the main thing here is the film has a website, it's hardmoneyfilm.com. Go on there, watch it for free. It's only, th- as you said, it's only 30 minutes. Um, you know, it's, there's no commitment. There's, you don't have to pay anything. So yeah, go and watch it, send it on to anyone you think might be interested. And, um, yeah, my, my Twitter handle is rjames underscore BTC, if you want to reach out to me on Twitter.
0: That's awesome, mate. And um, I'll show it for you. There is a donation option on the website where some people could, uh, if they felt they gained some value, might be able to send you across some Sats. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. Thanks so much. That's that's amazing. If anyone if anyone would love to do that, it's um, you know it's great to to just get that show of support, um, and, and you realise people are actually watching and, and appreciating. So yeah, on, on the film website, there's a there's a donation bus button. Um, for Bitcoin or Lightning, we can throw throw a few Sats over to um, show your support. That's much appreciated. Thanks.
0: All right, man. I'm going to go find it and hit that button. Richard, thank you so much for um, taking the time today. Thanks for making the film. Can't wait for the next one to come out. And um, yeah, really appreciate it, man.
1: Uh, thank you so much, Daniel. This has been been amazing to, to chat. I like guess I appreciate it.
0: Hey guys, hope you enjoyed that episode with Richard and learning about his journey into the rabbit hole that is Bitcoin and how he's now using his his skills of the past. You know, something that he had, he'd once walked away from from filmmaking, and now um, with the time uh, to sit down and put his his skills to to use again in the Bitcoin space and for free. And this is this is like. How can Bitcoin fail when we have this kind of talent in the space where so many people are are doing this kind of work for free? Like, because they love it so much, uh, it doesn't... I mean, yes, he said it took a long time and it was hard work, but it wouldn't have felt like work. This was something he would have been intellectually engaged with and thinking about during his sleep and getting up and, you know, getting straight into it. And this is what's happening to so many people, myself included. When I started this podcast, um, I didn't know that it was going to snowball into this and having these conversations with people from all over the world that are feeling the same kind of um, th- this pull, this, this, this mind shift. Uh, people are working their full-time job and then getting home and getting into th- their Bitcoin job, which they're doing for free because they just want to spread the word. that they they see this thing and they know what it's going to become and they just want to shout from the rooftops and be part of this 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 group of people that is uh, is growing, I would say slowly growing, but it's going to keep growing and growing and growing and growing. And to be part of this now, uh, you know, we're still so early, we say on many podcasts, Uh, I'm not the only one that says this, we are still so early. Um, So if you're here, if you're part of Bitcoin Twitter, if you're lurking, if you're listening to these podcasts if you're watching the films if you're reading the articles you know you've got something to add you know you do don't don't hold yourself back you know bring the noise let's go let's let's make this thing happen um you know it's it's for the greater good for of everybody and um we'll just keep fighting one meme at a time one article at a time one podcast one film uh it's it's a slow drip uh, but it's gonna happen so thanks to Richard for your hard work. this is brilliant. I can't wait for the next one and for those people interested in Richard's other work, go back and check out his surfing film. that looks amazing. His snowboarding film looks um, also like uh, just out of this world. so these are these are pro- you know obviously projects from from back in the day but you can see the the talent that he has. Um, Best of luck as well, mate, with your business. Um, I hope that comes uh, back online and you can start um, serving the people that, um, you know, you seek to serve and looking for that kind of experience. Um, Fingers crossed for you. And, uh, you know, well done for diversifying into Bitcoin. Um, That should buy you some time. So, reach out to Richard, guys. Go say hi. Um, Go share his film out. Let's try and get that in front of as many people as possible. And uh, a big thank you to everybody that shares, likes, comments. Anyone that's leaving reviews, uh, really appreciate it. Um, it's all very humbling. Thanks to everyone that helps the show. Adam, huge, huge, huge shout out. Um, you know, he puts all of the audio together, links all this music together, all the um, intros and outros. It's his own personal music that opens the show, and then uh, we use uh, Sir Badminton's uh, music uh, in the background as uh, as I speak. And um, He's done all that, he has a complete artistic license. He was the brains behind uh, the, the, uh, the pop of the bottle at the beginning of uh, Matt O'Dell's um, interview, which uh, everybody loves. So um, massive, massive thanks, man. Really appreciate it. And uh, to all of you guys as well. Stay safe, thank you, look forward to the next episode.